0: And please pray with me. Uh, Lord, we thank you uh, for your grace. Uh, Lord, that uh, you are faithful to not only put to use to the end that we would be saved, but also to put to use to the end that we would grow in you. So, Lord, even as those who have been justified by faith, may we this morning be sanctified by faith, by once again trusting you, by repenting of our sins and believing the gospel. Lord, would that be true for those of us who have put our faith in you? And Lord, if there are those of us here who are not so sure, Lord, would you give the gift to do that for the first time? Lord, that we would be restored to you, that we would... Uh, find our life in you, Lord, that the gospel would go into us very deeply and that it would go out very far into our city to the glory of your name. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. All right, have mercy. This is not your easiest psalm. It occurred to me this morning, you know, we have it in the script. I say the word of the Lord. You're all supposed to say thanks be to God, but there are times, I'll tell you, that You sound a little less enthusiastic than you do at other times. So let's get into this, Um, Psalm 53, well, like everyone else, uh, I spent elementary school getting down the basics, as I'm sure you did, the ABCs, the 1, 2, 3s, the colors. I remember, uh, I have a distinct memory of my teacher telling me why I shouldn't eat paste, learned that lesson early on. And somewhere in there, you know, I think I did a unit on the five senses, the senses of sight and hearing and touch and smell and taste. And at the time, the sense of taste was neatly divided into four subcategories of salty, sweet, sour, and bitter. But the year I graduated high school, 1990, a fifth taste was officially recognized by the International Symposium on Glutamate, which I'm sure you're all very familiar with. It was a little bit elusive. This taste was a little difficult to describe, but it was clearly distinct from the four classic tastes. Even as it managed to contain some elements of the others, it had some saltiness, some sweetness, some brininess, some meatiness. And they came to call that taste umami, which basically means in Japanese, yummy. Now, we're continuing in the psalms this morning, which scholars have traditionally divided into their own neatly defined categories. Psalms of praise and lament, imprecatory psalms, psalms where enemies are cursed, psalms for special occasions, wisdom psalms, royal psalms. But then you come to a psalm like Psalm 53 that doesn't fit very neatly into the categories, right? What is this thing? Is it an imprecatory psalm? Is it a royal psalm? Is it a lament? Is it wisdom? Is it it praise? Well, I think the answer to that is, yeah. It's a little bit of all those things. It's also, at the same time, kind of its own thing. It's, it's, It's an umami psalm. Maybe we've just created a new category. At the same time, you know, there is an arc to this psalm, and I want to follow that arc this morning under three headings. I want to look at The reality of disaster, disruption, and finally, deliverance. Most of this psalm, you heard, we read it together, has to do with disaster. And that part of the story starts off with a protagonist to the story, a person that David identifies as the fool. Now, when we use the word fool, we're generally talking about someone who's basically mentally deficient in some way. But when the Bible refers to a fool... It's descriptive not so much of a mental capacity as much as it is descriptive of a relational reality, especially as one relates to God. What is your relationship with God? And now, look, week in and week out here, we confess our faith, essentially looking around the room and saying, you know, there's lots of different kinds of people here, lots of backgrounds, lots of stories. But the bottom line to who we are, whatever else it is that we may be, we are those you say together, we are in relationship with God. We believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus' only Son. We just said that a moment ago. Well, the fool has a confession too. A bottom line to who he or she is, and that is that there is no God. But as critical as the fact that the fool says there is no God is where he says it. David says they say it in their heart. And when the Bible talks about the heart, it is referring to the controlling center of the human being, that place that determines what you treasure in life and thereby your trajectory in life. Which means that to say there is no God in the heart is more than just a comment. David is saying it's actually a conviction. And our convictions connect to every arena of our life. And I'm going to say more about that in a minute. But before we get there, you know, it might be at this point that we might all kind of nod in agreement and say, you know, it is a shame uh, that there's people who say in their heart that there is no God. And, And, you know, we might not say it out loud, but we might even think that if there were a lot more of us and a lot less of them, you know, the world would be a better place, right? have mercy. But but not so fast, because before we can even get out of the first verse, it becomes clear that David isn't confining this to a certain subset of people. The fool he is talking about, it turns out, is not an isolated case, but is a representative case. So sure, he starts talking off about the fool, but he continues by saying, they are corrupt and do abominable deeds, and then completes the thought in the end by saying, there's none who does good. In other words, the foolishness he's talking about here is not a case-by-case kind of condition. It is instead a corporate condition. Reinhold Niebuhr once observed that, of all the Christian doctrines, the universality of sin is the only empirically verifiable doctrine of the Christian faith. And even as I say that, you might disagree with that idea, you know, and you wouldn't be the first. During the Enlightenment, during the Age of Discovery, philosophies like Jean-Jacques Rousseau imagined that once, you know, European explorers really got out into the world, you know, they'd eventually come upon what he called the natural man. That is to say that, that somebody would eventually come upon a person or a tribe or a nation living in what he called the state of nature untainted by the corrupting effects of society and war and religion and all those external influences that have tainted the other parts of the world, right? The only problem was is that those people and those cultures and those nations were never discovered. For all the new things that were explored in the age of discovery, innocence and sinlessness wasn't one of them. All the same, David insists, you know, you can't really understand the disaster of sin simply by looking around. So he invites us to see it from a different angle, to see it, in fact, as God sees it, by looking down from heaven upon humanity. Now, when when he says that God looks down on us, he uses this very particular word that indicates something like scrutiny, something like close inspection. And, and look, we all know that, that no one has any hope of really understanding and knowing themselves self-referentially. None of us do that. We all know that to truly know ourselves, we need things outside of ourselves, right? We need family and friends to speak the truth to us. We need mirrors and scales. We need microscopes. We need MRIs. In the same way, David is saying to, to really know the truth about who we are at our core, in our hearts, we need the Lord's look upon us. We need his word coming from the outside to tell us the truth about ourselves. The ground level perspective isn't adequate because it's always grading on the curve. We need the clarity and the vastness and depth of God's perspective on our lives to know ourselves truly. And God's assessment is a bit of a doozy. (laughs) God's assessment is that no one is exempt from being the fool who says in their heart that there is no God. Because, he says, there's none who does good, not even one. That is the only way for us to understand this foolishness in its fullness. And look, there might be 50 ways to leave your lover, but there's a million ways to be a fool. And, you know, we might be most familiar with the form of foolishness that's expressed in the life just by rowdiness and rebelliousness, right? And no doubt, we can certainly do our there is no God thing by raging against him in lawless rebellion, but we can also do the there is no God thing by relying on our own moral rigor and religiosity, just so that we'll never have to rely on anything other than that, least least of all God. So what I'm saying is common to both and underneath both and animating both rowdy rebellion and self-reliant rigor is a determination to disconnect from a living relationship with God. Both are versions of banishing God from the controlling center. Both are ways of saying there is no God. I'm in charge. So it turns out that it's not just the Richard Dawkinses of the world and the Christopher Hitchens of the world and the Bill Marses of the world who say there's no God. There's a kind of functional atheism which easily grips us. And you can see it sort of play out in verse 2 where it's explained that foolishness is manifest not only in outright dismissal of God in our lives, but also in a, in a way of living in which, we are, in which there is an ongoing disregard of God in our lives. Where, where he says no one is seeking God. One of the striking realities of the earliest days of the church when it was enduring persecution at the hands of the Roman Empire is the fact that among the, mo- the most serious charges leveled against Christians is that they were atheists. And, you, you know, you kind of laugh at that now because whatever else a Christian may or may not be, you've got to at least acknowledge, you know, they believe in God. But here's the thing, the Romans didn't charge them with atheism because they didn't believe in God. They charged them with atheism because they, didn't, because they believed in the wrong God. Not only were Christians believing in and worshiping the triune God of the Bible, they weren't believing in and worshiping any other gods. So the Roman understanding of atheism involved more than simply saying there's no God, Their definition of atheism involved the failure to worship their gods. They knew what remains true, that we've all got our gods. We're all believers. We're all worshipers. The object of our worship reveals the deepest loyalty of the heart and the direction of life. And in this respect, you know, the Roman Empire had really good theology. They they would have had no problem with Christians worshiping the triune God of the Bible just so long as they also acknowledged that Caesar is Lord and Savior of the world. Just add Yahweh to the pantheon, and we're good to go. But if you had the temerity to worship God alone, that was tantamount to rejecting Caesar, Caesar, to rejecting the pantheon, which meant Rome didn't have your heart. It didn't take hold of your deepest loyalties, and it didn't determine the direction of your life. And that's why, and that meant, as far as they were concerned, you're an atheist. And that's why they took the statement that Jesus is Lord as subversive, seditious, and criminal. Because to say Jesus is Lord is at the same time to say no one else is, least of all Caesar. In fact, this is precisely how Israel continually found themselves falling into idolatry. You'll be hard-pressed reading the Old Testament to find any situ, any Occasions where they just outright rejected Yahweh in favor of another God. It, god was rarely completely rejected, but he was regularly marginalized. He was rejected as Lord alone, even as they tried to retain him as something like a mascot. There's the atheism of there is no God, and there's the atheism of not seeking and serving the one true God alone by marginalizing him, by diminishing him, by bringing in greater loves and greater loyalties. And, you know, okay, I'm going to say, I'm a little nervous about talking about this, but I'm going to talk about it. I suspect that many of us have had some experience with this lately. You know, that we've gotten a little beaten up with the idea that it's just not enough for you to put your faith in and follow Jesus alone. What's necessary, some have tried to convince you with memes and emails and texts and phone calls and conversations, is that to prove the legitimacy of your faith, you've got to add something to it. You need to add a righteous cause. You need to add a righteous candidate or a righteous political party. Greg and I have even been, you know, subject to people saying, you know, why are you not courageous enough to be preaching politics from the pulpit? have mercy. You know, we're ordained to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's not courageous for us to be preaching politics. It's actually quite cowardly, I would say, because there's no cost. The gospel will cost you. Politics will just run some of you off and retain the others who agree with us, and then we have something other than a church. Have mercy. Jesus, help. So it's striking, isn't it, that as God looks down from heaven, he sees a whole lot of seeking, and he sees nothing but stumbling. With no one seeking him, everyone falling away, corruption, no one doing good. Again, those devastating words, not even one. But still, you know, I want to say those words, not even one has done good, can seem a little too definitive, right? I mean, Maybe there's some people that have slipped David's mind. I mean, wouldn't it be better to say something like, some have turned aside, many have become corrupt, or that there are many who do good, just not as many as we would have hoped for. (laughs) You know, I remember doing my my Heroes of the Bible unit in Sunday school and learning about the exemplars of faith, the greatest saints who'd ever lived, right? Dare to be a Daniel. Daniel. And you look at this and you go, why would David drag such a, such a great guy like Daniel into this? None, none righteous, not even one? And yet for all those Sunday school lessons, I, I don't remember hearing much about the murderer who tried to cover his tracks. Or the drunk, naked guy in the cave or the guy who tried to pass off his wife as his sister to protect himself and putting her her at risk of being sexually violated by powerful people. And yet, I'm talking about Moses and Noah and Abraham. And look, I could go on, but isn't it a striking thing that the Bible continually tells us and lays before us the spectacular sins of the saints, precisely so that we would know there are no heroes of the Bible, there's just the humans of the Bible. Who are, like, who are exactly like the humans today. All of us, weak and wounded, sick and sore, bruised and broken by the fall, all in need of the one hero of the Bible, who is the Lord Jesus. King David issues what amounts to a blanket condemnation that everyone is guilty, that everyone's turned from God, that everyone's opposed to Him, because it's true of us all. So if you're beginning to think that all of humanity is caught up in a massive universal crisis... You are picking up what the Bible is laying down. What he's describing here is not sin as a crisis. It is sin as the crisis. And emphasizing the point, one of the fascinating things about this psalm, Psalm 53, is that it's the only psalm in the Psalter that has a basic, a virtual duplicate in Psalm 14. Nearly word for word. And I'm no great Bible scholar, but I don't think it's pushing it too far to say that if the Bible tells us nearly the same exact thing more than once, it might be so that we can get some critical information hammered into our heads and into our hearts. And a big part, it seems that what the scriptures want us to know is that the bad news of our sin is just that it's very, very bad news then the question is, why is that such critical information? It is critical for this reason. Please hear me. If we don't have a clear understanding of the bad news of our sin, we have no hope of ever beginning to understand the good news of our salvation. And look, hard as it may be to take a good, look, a good hard look at the reality of our sin in the first three verses of this psalm, The Apostle Paul takes us through three chapters in the book of Romans, probably the Bible's most thorough explication of the gospel, laying out in detail the intensity and the intractability of the disaster that is our sin. And foundational to the case he makes there are these first three verses, Psalm 53, 1 through 3, that none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. And look, if you're a religious person, and I'll say, especially if you are as deeply invested in the religious industrial complex as I am, And as Greg is, and as Sandy is, this can hurt your feelings. It might be especially hard to hear if you've kind of managed to navigate life basically keeping your nose clean and your ducks in a row. As I regularly delude myself into thinking that by virtue of the fact I've got no DUIs, I haven't had a bar fight yet, I haven't rolled my car, there's no knocked up girlfriends, And, you know, to say nothing of all my meritorious works of supervenient grace in managing to get a pretty good education and sustain something of a a career and somehow stay married, you know, this can be a little hard to stomach if you've cherished the thought that because of something in you, a charming personality or smarts or good looks or hard work or a good family or regular church attendance, you put together a pretty good life for yourself. But whatever your story or mine and whatever troubles we congratulate ourselves for staying out of or what level of success we may pat ourselves on the back for having attained, when we're reading the 53rd Psalm, we're not just reading the Bible, we are reading our biography. We are reading an in-depth, no-holds-barred, 365-degree expose, a biography we're able to see Not from ground level great on the curve story we tell ourselves, but from the God who sees and knows us down to the bottom of who we are better than we can ever even know ourselves. So whether you know you're religious or non religious or a do-gooder or a reprobate or a success in the eyes of the world or a failure, the truth of our story is that left to ourselves we've all confessed in our hearts there is no God. We've all become corrupt, done abominable deeds. None of us are good. None of us have sought God, not even one. But here's the other thing. You might be thinking, well, what would be the consequences if I actually believe that? Won't that put a serious dent in my self-esteem? Won't it make me harsh and unfeeling and judgmental towards others? But here's what I really hope we can see. Harsh as the biblical doctrine of sin may seem, I'd venture to say that it is far less harsh than what you may already believe and are trying to live by. It is certainly no less harsh than the never-ending project of trying to quiet your own conscience, trying to convince others that you're more righteous than you actually are or ever will be. It's no harsher than the exhaustion of trying to maintain appearances or hide from something that you feel you will be rejected if it's ever discovered. Of never being free to admit how deeply you struggle, how much you doubt, how thoroughly you mess up. It's no harsher than the ongoing life sucking project of always striving to prove yourself worthy of the love of God and others. I mean, has anyone been exhausted by that? I have. Have you felt the loneliness of that? The harshness of it in your own life? Have you seen it hurt others as you try to navigate and manage and handle sin on your own? Do you know what it's like to be waylaid and wounded and worn out because you're never ever you've never been allowed to be weak or fall apart? You see, when we're finally able to admit that our sin really is that bad, that it's not just a problem out there, but it's in here, we can quit playing the games. We can actually stand on common ground with those that we might have been judging or condemning before because we actually know that we're no better. We know that that the Bible says it, and that's our biography. That whatever ground we may have once stood on in judging or condemning others or in feeling despair in ourselves, has fallen away. That we're in the position of being able to be set free from sin and striving. Someone once said that the basis of real kind of fellowship or friendship is when you come alongside someone in the world and say, you too? I thought I was all alone. And this doctrine shows us you're not alone. Can, can you begin to see the glimmers of grace and being able to put an end to the pretending and the posturing, and say that we're far more frail and failed than we'd ever like to admit, seeing that, that, that this disaster isn't just someone else's story, but, but mine too? Have you ever had the experience when you've been confronted in your sin, and, and, and you've been able, you've felt free to go, oh, you don't know the half of it. You're just seeing the outside. You haven't seen my heart. Have mercy. Marilyn Robinson, in a great essay called Puritans and Prigs, observes this. The belief that we are all sinners gives us excellent grounds for forgiveness and self-forgiveness, and is kindlier than any expectation that we might be saints, even while it affirms the standards all of us fail to attain. Unless we come to grips with the bad news, we have no hope of understanding the good news. That's what David is trying to impress on us by doubling down with duplicate psalms that we're just incapable of understanding our story of what God has done in redemption until we contend with the reality of our rebellion. The good news is that the disaster does not have to become the destination. And just when you think you can't take it anymore in this psalm, Finally, the psalm is divinely disrupted, so that while the first half of the psalm could fall under the heading of something like, messed up people, in verse 4, wildly, God calls those same people, my people. And you've got to wonder, you know, where do these people come from? Why are they there? How is it that he has a people? Clearly, it's not because anyone's managed to get back into God's good graces by earning his affection. No, instead it's simply because we have become the object of his affection. You see, the reason there is a a people of God is because there exists the grace of God. And the only way to understand grace as grace is to understand not only that it's free, but that it's undeserved. The gospel doesn't take us from sort of doing okay to divine grace. It connects, as David does here, deserved condemnation with undeserved grace. It connects, to put it in Peter's language, with once no people, but now God's people. It connects death to life. So not only is it critical to understand the badness of the bad news to get the goodness of the good news, it's vital to never forget that connection, to never move on from the gospel, to continue to contend with the reality of our sin and the greatness of grace, not so that we would earn grace, because it's already been received as grace, but so that we would grow in grace. Never forgetting that even if we, as we've been saved from sin, we still contend with it. We still struggle with it. It's still in us. That's why we continue to repent of our sins and believe the gospel, growing in gratitude and dependence on him as those who've been transferred from death to life by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Lest we forget, and worse still, Begin to imagine that while God's grace gave us a boost, we take it from here, (laughs) right? And look, you might be here this morning hearing of this for the first time. Maybe you're curious, you're questioning, you're skeptical about the gospel even. And I want you to know that even as the gospel tells you the truth of your own story of the disaster of sin, and our story as well, that doesn't have to be the entirety of the story. That doesn't have to be the end of the story. So while this, sh- this psalm has shown us the disaster of sin and the dis- disruption of God's grace, it also shows how God is faithful to deliver us in the end to newness of life by his grace. Notice in verse 4 how God disrupts our tragedy, not by standing apart from it, but by, by entering into it. How he doesn't stand apart from our troubles, but enters into them. There's a real sense that the Lord is feeling those troubles himself, that that, that he is lamenting how his people are being crushed and consumed. Do do you see the sympathy there, the tenderness of God's heart? What Isaiah explains as true of God, that in all their affliction, he was afflicted, is actually actively expressed in this psalm. He's feeling the affliction of our affliction. You see, God's people not only have his sympathy and affection, they have his steadfastness, his protection, his presence. And this is from the God who should not have only turned from his people, but when we understand the depth of the rebellion, he should have turned on his people in judgment, righteously. And yet he comes near, not merely sympathizing, but in a sense suffering right along with them, The psalm ends with hope that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when God restores the fortunes of his people, let Jacob rejoice and let Israel be glad. In fact, it's something better than hope. Uh, The prayer ends in certainty. Not if God restores the fortunes of his people, but when God restores the fortunes of his people. David is looking to a time, he's grabbing onto the promises of God when, when God will disrupt the disaster with deliverance, turning suffering into salvation, meeting our misery with mercy, changing our tears into gladness, taking us from the bad news of our sin to the good news of salvation. In fact, salvation has come out of Zion in the person of Jesus. The Savior who has restored the fortunes of his people, the fortune that we forfeited in our rebellion. So so the song that started with God looking down on our tragedy ends with the certainty that our fortunes lost because of our sin will be restored to us. Restored by the Savior who steps into our fallen humanity as Emmanuel, as God with us, the refuge of the afflicted. Redemption has come in Jesus who has come in the flesh, in and among us, becoming one of us with all of our humanity and frailty. But unlike us, He's not a fool. Unlike us, he was perfectly obedient. He did seek after God. He did do good. He never turned aside or fell away or became corrupt. He is the only one who actually attained righteousness, a righteousness and obedience that become ours by faith in him through grace. His saving work has undone the tragedy by earning a righteousness We could never attain on our own. And by enduring the punishment that was due to fools like you and me on the cross. Allowing himself to be eaten up like bread by sin on the cross so that we wouldn't have to be consumed by it ourselves. He went through the misery so that we might receive mercy. He was broken apart that we might be restored. He suffered that we would come into possession of joy and gladness. Because of Jesus, what starts as human tragedy becomes divine comedy. So that our disaster is undone and we are left with nothing but rejoicing and gladness. Let's pray. Lord, yours is a great gospel. We thank you for loving us enough to tell us the truth. Lord, you are like the divine physician who is faithful to give us the true diagnosis, but not leaving us to heal ourselves, not leaving us to die of it, but entering in, taking even our affliction and our illness upon yourself, that we would be healed, that we would be restored. Lord, that we would come into full possession of the great salvation you give us. Lord, you have taken us further than any of us maybe will ever apprehend in this life, not just from okay to better, not from good people to better people, but from death to life. And Lord, we thank you for it. And Lord, as we prepare to come to this table, we recognize that it represents the divine disruption to our disaster in the person of Jesus who put an end to sin and striving who entered into our fallen humanity, who took on the full burden of the law in his life and the full brunt of sin in his death on the cross so that we could be received by God, not as strangers, not as orphans, but as sons and daughters, reconciled to him, resting in him. Lord, we thank you that we can come to this meal full of faith, even faith the the size of a mustard seed, knowing that we are not coming to meet your demands, but with faith, knowing that they've been met fully in Jesus. Thank you. Help us as we come, we pray in his name, amen.